Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We all know that the drought is bad. After the incredibly dry first quarter of the year, recent measurements found the Sierra snowpack is sitting at just 39% of normal. Oof. While it will probably mean water conservation measures for those of us here in the Bay, for farmers in the Central Valley, it could mean a lot worse. As the drought stretches on, can California farms survive? And maybe more fundamentally, should they? Today we talk about the future of water in the state and what it means for agriculture. We'll be joined by a farmer, a water expert, and author Tom Philpot, who argued in his book Perilous Bounty that a crisis was coming to California agriculture. Is it here? That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Agriculture brought in $49 billion to our state, nearly half of which was money made from exporting crops. But agriculture also uses 80% of the state's developed water. With the drought and other problems last year, the industry lost 8,700 jobs and cropland totaling an area bigger than Los Angeles went unplanted. Yet big ag remains a juggernaut in our state, and today we want to explore how long what is obviously an unsustainable situation can continue. We're joined by Tom Philpot, author of Perilous Bounty, which argues that the U.S. needs to rethink the way we do agriculture, starting with a reduced role for California. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me, Alexis. Sure. We're also joined by Ellen Hannock, vice president and director of the Public Policy Institute of California, where she heads up the PPIC Water Policy Center. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Thank you. Good morning. Tom, you know, you're brilliant at describing why California has historically been an amazing place to grow food, the combination of our climate, geography, water infrastructure. Just just tell us that. Why has California been such a great place to grow food? Well, California has one of the world's biggest Mediterranean climates. And, and so what that means is that it has, you know, warm and long and reliably dry summers. Um, and that's if you if you have water, if you can get access access to water, that's really good conditions for growing fruits and vegetables and nut trees. Um, because you know, if you can control the water that comes in, you have lower disease pressure, like you know, stuff like fungal diseases, you've got lower insect pressure, um, and you can sort of push a button and irrigate and not worry about like annoying rainstorms in the middle of July in the growing season. Um, it is a great place to grow food. And that's why it, you know, it's become a powerhouse um, in the global context and you know, even more so in the national context for the production of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and other stuff like that. 
And this wasn't seen as a bad thing. It was seen as this was California's comparative advantage over other places. Right. It was like, um, you know, why should we devote farmland in places like the Midwest or the Southeast to a lot of fruit and vegetable production? Um, those places don't have the advantages. They've, you know, short growing season in the Midwest, lots and lots of summer rain in the Southeast. Um, let's let California do that uh, on a grand scale. And I should also add another um, comparative advantage of California is, you know, existing on the Mexican border. And California agriculture has always relied heavily on immigrant labor from Mexico. So you've got this labor situation where you got plentiful labor and because of our immigration policies, often very disempowered labor. Um, and then you've got this these climatic advantages. Um, and so, you know, as a result of that, you know, fruit and vegetable production starts to slip in places like the Midwest, the Southeast, the Northeast. And so, so we sort of get all of our fruits and vegetables from California. Yeah. Ellen Hannock with the PPIC Water Policy Center. You have an incredible view of all the different water management systems that are in place here in California. We heard Tom say earlier, you know, if you can get water there. So can you give us a sense of the really remarkable complexity of the organization of our water grid? Right. So California has probably one of the most complex water delivery systems um, of anywhere. We, you know, the northern part of the state is pretty wet uh, in most years. Um, and we, you know, our mountains provide a, quite quite a lot of precipitation and snow usually, um, and we send that water down to to coastal cities, and we send it down to the southern central valley, the San Joaquin Valley, which is the place that Tom described pretty well in terms of a, a great place to grow grow things if you can add the water. Mm -hmm. um, and and so you know this this is a system that a enables us to get through um, to move get through dry summers, but also to get through droughts. But when we have a, a third year of drought like we're looking at now, it, it gets really tough. How how bad is the drought right now? This is a pretty bad one, um, and it's coming on the heels of a major drought that we had in the last decade. But you know, now you, you mentioned the, the the snowpack numbers; they're low. They're not as low as they were at this time in 2015, but we've had really record dry months this winter. After it looked good, December was a record wet month, um, and that's lucky because otherwise we'd, we'd be really in trouble. But this is going to be a really tough year because it's hot and we don't have a lot of water to, to spread around. Your team there at the Water Policy Center has spent a lot of time thinking about the way that California's changing climate will stress our water system in different ways. When you see drought years like this, and of course every situation is going to be different, you know, how far it comes from the previous drought, you know, how when that precipitation comes, Tell us in, in general, though, at a slightly more abstract level, what happens when we have drought like this and we just don't get rain when we expect it? So, you know, one year like that is usually not a problem. Two years like that starts to get tough. Third year, like this one, um, it's going to get really tough. And what, you, what we're going to see, I mean, they're announcing now the numbers. Farms, farms are really getting shorted their surface water deliveries up in the Sacramento Valley. The folks who are the most senior, you know, the, have the longest standing water rights are only getting 18% of their typical deliveries. And the, the folks that are 
you know, less high high in priority are getting zero surface water. Down in the in the um, San Joaquin Valley, you know, there's just a, a few groups that have senior rights that are going to do okay, and the rest are getting zero surface water. So what that does is it puts a lot of pressure on on growers to to pump more groundwater, um, especially if they've got tree crops, which they they you know they need to keep alive. Um, with some water or else their, their investment is gone. But it's, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a huge pressure for, for all the growers. And we're going to talk about groundwater a bit more in a second. But Tom, I wanted you to describe what it was like as you're, as you're researching your book and you're really learning about how water rights work in the West. Can you just give our readers that kind of beginner's mind of like you approach water rights, you go like, how did this system develop? Yeah, I mean, it developed in this really kind of wild west way, as you would um, as you would probably imagine. Um, and that, you know, the 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 principle was, you know, when you bought land and and sort of dropped your you know major land claim on a particular area, you could you know take water from the river, um, and those those the the water rights developed along those original um, land development patterns. Um, and so it's very, very wild west. And then in terms of groundwater, the way it worked until twenty fourteen was basically a complete free for all. Um, if you if you if you own land, you can put a well on, on the on your land and pump as much water as you can get. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is that, um, you know, aquifers don't follow property lines, uh, so it ends up being a common resource. And so you, what you get is a sort of um, what, what's happened um, in the past 20 or so years, um, and, and probably more than that, is a kind of race to the bottom of the aquifer. Um, and, and things changed a little bit in 2014, and we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Ellen, I mean, you're a legend in Sacramento for working on reforming California's water system. Can you tell us, obviously, you know, we're not the first people to think about California's water rights system and say, hey, this might not be the best thing to do. So what has that reform process looked like over time? Well, so the the, the groundwater law that Tom mentioned that, that passed in 2014 was really Monu- a monumental shift in in California water, and because we, we've had, you know, our wa- the water rights system that we talk about as being kind of complex and whatnot, that's mostly that mostly what we're talking about there is surface water, and that was kind of a first in time, first in right system where the folks who got there first and started using the water, they have the most senior rights, and you know, mo- goes on down the, the 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 last the last to get served is the first to get get cut off in a shortage. That system is not what everybody would like to see, but it, it it's, I would say it, people understand it. With the groundwater, it has been much more of a free-for-all. And now folks are in the midst of a, a, a really radical change in how they manage groundwater. And that's not an overnight shift that's happening, but there's been a lot of work done to understand the basins better. And to, in some places, they're starting to put in allocation plans and basically allocating pumping rights to, to folks to, to stop the pressure, the downward pressure on the groundwater basins so that it's available for dry times like this. And this is the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act passed in 2014 and really started to take effect right in 2020. The first plans were put into place. And when should we expect to see change from that in the sort of on the ground water situation? Or is that it, it itself complicated by this drought? Uh, too. 
So this drought is basically going to push people to have to manage demand uh, more quickly, I think. But the the plans are our implementations already underway. Um, the the law sets up a 20 year timeline for getting to sustainability. So folks in, in principle have until you know the early 2040s to fully attain balance in their basins, you know, where, where supply and demand are kind of lined up and they're not over pumping on a long-term basis. But the law also puts in guardrails saying, in the, in, while you're implementing this, you cannot cause significant undesirable effects to other groundwater users, for example. And so if you're causing people's drinking water sources to go dry, that's a problem, a red flag, and you're going to have to do something about it, or the state could step in. Yeah. Do you think the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was sort of the, the biggest deal in California water policy during your career? Oh, yeah. This is the, 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 the biggest thing that we've seen in a long time. Um, you know, and it came about 100 years after the, the modern um, water code for surface water was enacted. So, Kind of, kind of momentous. California was the last Western state to adopt statewide regulation for groundwater. Wow. We're talking about the future of agriculture in California in light of the extreme drought now in its third year. We're joined by Ellen Hannock, vice president and director of the PPIC Water Policy Center and a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, as well as Tom Philpot, author of Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming, How We Can Prevent It. Book comes out in paperback May 2nd. We would love to hear from you. Are you concerned about California no longer being able to sustain its agricultural industry because of climactic change? Why or why not? Are you a farmer who stopped growing crops because there's not enough water? How are you coping with the drought? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, or got a lot to cover, so you can get in your comments to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of agriculture in California in light of the extreme drought now in its third year, as well as broader climactic change. We're joined by Tom Philpot, author of Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. That book's out in paperback May 2nd, as well as Ellen Hannock, vice president and director of the Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center. Ellen, I wanted to ask you about a recent New York Times um, editorial in which a Berkeley water scientist argued that sort of the models for water in our state 
sort of old and losing concordance with reality so that even when we know how much rain and snowpack is coming in, it doesn't necessarily translate into the kind of human system in a predictable way. Are you worried about that as well? Well, you know, what that article really highlighted was um, the challenges of shifting temperatures and the shifting behavior of water as a result of it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we get we get most of our precipitation in in, you know, a few months in the in the winter, early spring. And we have historically relied on some of that precipitation falling as snow and just hanging out in the in the mountains and kind of reliably melting just around the time when we start to gear up for our irrigation season. And so, you know, it flows into the reservoirs. We can empty the reservoirs some to supply irrigation. That is that relationship has is really breaking down because the snowpack is just we're getting less of it. It's melting faster. And then it, it's just like last year, the, the expectation was um, with the forecast that there was going to be another 700 thousand acre feet which i'll just say you know it's a lot of water uh, <laughs> um, that that just never materialized that did not make it um into the system so you know part of it probably was that the soils were very dry um part of it might be that people were um you know pumping more and we didn't have a good good measurement of it but in any case we're we need those forecasts to be able to make decisions about how much water is going to be delivered to to farms and to cities and and if we don't have good forecasts, we we have to give we give people the wrong information and have to you know call it call it back after the fact. Yeah, you know Tom Philpot, uh, when you were working on your book uh, a few years ago, you were sort of predicting that this water these water problems would eventually cause like a big pullback in in California agriculture. Have you been surprised by the last few years, or does this seem like okay? The, this is the crisis that I saw coming. Um, I think it's pretty much the crisis that I saw coming. I mean, before the pretty apocal drought of the first part of the last decade, like 2011 to 2016 or thereabouts, um, there had been multiple droughts in the year before that. And it would, you know, if you look at the pattern of sort of good years and bad years for the Sierra Nevada snowpack, what we're starting to uh, you know, see is what the climate modelers have been telling us for a while, that years of bad, of, of sort of bad snowpack, of snowpack that evaporates quickly, that melts quickly, like Ellen was talking about, are pretty much the new normal. Um, so I was, um, you know, I am shocked at the, you know, to, to, to see California plunge right back into this sort of uh, a, a drought of a similar scale, that, that was existing when I wrote the book. Um, it, it is shocking, um, but it's also not very surprising. I, I think this is something that we're going to be grappling with, not just in California, but also in the US food system as a whole of, you know, how do we adjust to this situation that is changing so rapidly right before our eyes? Yeah. You know, Stanford's uh, Michael Wara recently said this to the Washington Post, we're on a collision course with economics. He's a senior research scholar at Stanford's Woods Institute for the Environment. We're going to end up following millions of acres. So politically, what does that look like? I think the decision is being made, although no one is making it, about the future of agriculture. And I think the answer is not what people want. Ellen Hannock, you have 
worked a lot in your career on the trade-offs in our water system, balances between different uses and geographic regions. Do you agree that basically where we're headed is just fallowing tons of land? We're going to be shrinking our irrigated footprint for sure. Um, I, you know, the, the extent of that is going to depend somewhat on some things that we really don't know yet, which is, you know, is the, is the future really going to be drier on average or um, are we mainly going to be managing with a, with a hotter future. Um, and the, right now, you know, we, we definitely have since 2000, it's been drier on average over the last couple of decades than, than it was in the, in the preceding few decades. Um, but the, the climate models are not, you know, not clear for California on whether on average it's going to be drier. And in fact, you know, it, what they mainly are predicting is a lot more volatility, um, mm. you know, with more extreme wets as well as more extreme dries. Now we are definitely losing our snowpack. So unless we are able to capture that water some other way, like in the ground and store it in the ground, we will have to, to, to shrink for that reason. But, um, you know, at, at a minimum in the San Joaquin Valley, folks are gonna have to lose about 10% of the acreage just to bring their groundwater basins into balance. Want to bring in a caller before we know you've uh, got to go at nine thirty, Ellen? Uh, Kenneth from Benicia. Hey, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I think we really need to think outside the box. And on an individual basis, like what I do, is I have a five-gallon bucket when I'm taking a shower and keep the cold water. When I'm doing my dishes, I have a bucket in there so I keep all my gray water. I'm watering my garden with it. But on a bigger scale, all the water, millions and millions of gallons the bay that's already clean we could be pumping and build an infrastructure to send it to the farmers in the valley and we're not doing that because it's totally outside the box and it would cost money but we could be doing that and filling up the aquifers uh giving water to the almond trees and we just need to start thinking differently yeah. thanks anyway, kenneth uh, kenneth from benicia appreciate that ellen you've done some work on all kinds of solutions i mean wh where do you see that kind of um water reuse, gray water, water recycling, that right. that realm of... of uh, so first I'll say, you know, kudos, Kenneth, on, on the practices in your home to, to save water. That's that's really excellent. Um, and, you know, those are the kinds of solutions that, that those of us in, in the urban and suburban environments can... We get, it really helps to, to, to be water-wise in, in our communities. Um, the... For agriculture and kind of getting getting water at, at the scale that they need, um, some of the kinds of solutions that are useful in urban environments are not going to be that useful because they're really expensive. So, for example, you know, and it's because partly water is heavy, right? But recycled water is more and more being used within urban communities rather than just, you know, sending it out to the ocean as treated wastewater. But pumping that all the way back to agricultural areas can be really costly. Now, there are places on the coast, like in the central coast, where those are solutions that can work, where you've got ag right near the communities. Um, so the, the solutions are going to be kind of location specific, but solving the San Joaquin Valley's problem is going to take uh, um, solutions that are, that are cheap enough to keep agriculture in business. What do you think those are going to be? 
Um, well, I do think that there's a lot more potential for getting water into the ground. So, you know, storing storing more groundwater in the, in our groundwater basins. There's a lot of experience with that already, and we've got some of the most advanced groundwater banks in the world. Um, but that means being ready to capture water from the big storms and get it in the ground. And then, um, you know, there's there's some scope for in, in improving our surface reservoirs as well and, and make, making them a little bit more flexible to this changing climate. And then um, I think, you know, the other piece of it is going to be being smart about demand management. So rather than just kind of uh, taking land out of production willy-nilly and in a haphazard way, being, being really thoughtful about where are the most productive lands, how do we keep the water on those lands, how do we transform some of the, the other lands, the more marginal lands, towards solar energy. There's a big potential there. The San Joaquin mm. Valley is a great place to do that. Um, so there, there could be some, you know, some graceful transition solutions, I'll say. It's not win-win-win, but it's at least um, softer landing. Yeah. We've been talking about the future of agriculture in California in light of the extreme drought. We've been joined by Ellen Hannock, Vice President and Director of the PPIC Water Policy Center, and Senior Fellow at Public Policy Institute of California. Ellen, we know you got to go. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take yeah. care. We'll continue to be joined by Tom Philpot, author of Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Book comes out in paperback on, on May 2nd. We do want to add another voice into this conversation, though. We weren't able to get him live, but we were able to talk with Del Bosque. He's a farmer in the Central Valley, features prominently in Tom's book, and he's actually been a guest on this show before, too. We caught up with him yesterday for his perspective on the ongoing drought. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be yeah. here. So why don't you tell me about your farm? Where are you located, and how would you become a grower? Well, I'm located in uh, Central California, about 60 miles west of Fresno in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, I've been out here literally all my life. Uh, my parents used to be migrant farm workers that settled here when I was about four years old. So I grew up here um, working on the farm with my father. And then um, I was able to start my own farm in 1985. And... Uh, so today I grow, I grow melons, I grow almonds, cherries. I was also growing um, or asparagus and tomatoes and, um, and sweet corn, but I'm not growing those anymore because of lack of water. So how big's the farm uh, overall? Well, total acreage is about 2,000 acres. Wow. And how does that like sort of compare to the other farms around there? I would say that's a medium-sized farm for this area. There's much larger ones and there's smaller ones. Kind of depends on, on what the farm grows, right? Um, if they grow higher valued crops, they tend to be smaller. And if they grow lower valued crops, they tend to be bigger. Are you out on the farm right now? I am. I'm, I'm right here uh, by one of my melon fields. Oh, I, I think I hear, I hear the wind blowing a little bit. I'm like, this is very, um, this is 100% authentic out on the field as, uh, as things are blowing around. So tell me about the impacts of the drought on, on your farm. Well, the impacts have been affecting us for quite a long time. You know, they, actually, you can go back to 1990 since we've had water reductions. Uh, but we got used to them and we, you know, by getting, uh, becoming more efficient with our water and so forth, 
but it's turned much more severe in the in the last uh, about 12 years, and even more so with this more recent drought. Um, and so what, what droughts usually mean for us is um, the impacts are that we, we fallow land. That means we don't plant it. And so we, we don't have crops. You know, it, it hurts our, the economy of our farm. It also impacts our workers because we don't have jobs. Mm-hmm. And can you do that with all the crops or only some of them? Like I imagine you can't fallow the almonds. And fallow the almonds. Um, and the melons, you know, they're an annual crop but it's really hard to follow the melons and i'll tell you why because we you know, i i tell people that and uh, you know melons are an annual crop but, but they're a perennial program and the reason being that number one i've established a market share for my melons and that's important that i'm in the market every year and also because i have the infrastructure and the workforce that specialize in melons. And if I fallow and, and I'm out of the program, I lose that workforce. So it's very important for me to try to stay in melons every year if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to be a melon grower shipper, because if I'm out one year, I'm gone. I'll never be able to come back. Yeah. Historically, sir, where does your water come from? So our, our water comes from the Central Valley Projects which uh, captures and stores water in Shasta Reservoir above, above uh, Redding. It's pumped into canals and then brought down to San Luis Reservoir Forest where it's stored there. But that's assuming that you get allocations through the Central Valley Project, you know, and it goes through all that water works. You have to actually be allocated the water in order to, to use it. Exactly right. And uh, we've had zero water allocation. Uh, this year and last year, and I can't remember three years ago, maybe we had 5%, not much. If we don't get an allocation, we have to find other sources of water. So we reach out to other farmers in, in the Central Valley and offer to buy water from them. Uh, it usually comes at a very high cost, but if we can get it, you know, it keeps us alive. You can't pump groundwater then at this point? In my, on my farm, I don't have any groundwater. Um, you have to go, uh, I'm up kind of on a slope toward the coastal range. <clears throat> so you have to get farther down, closer to the bottom of the valley where you find, you know, more groundwater. Right where we're at, you know, some of them, my neighbors have tried test, uh, you know, drilling holes and they found that there's very little water and very poor quality. So yeah. they just gave up on it. Too, too salty to use and yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Do you feel like your farm is in existential danger from the drought? It definitely is. Uh, we have, you know, we have had two very difficult years the last two years, um, you know, and, and, and this year looks just as difficult. I don't know uh, whether we can come out well at the end of this year. So th- we're definitely looking at this year as being as being a um, almost a make or break year. So let me ask a, a little bit more difficult question. And that's, you know, given the rainfall where you are and, you know, given what could be permanently different water conditions, I mean, do you think your land should be used as a farm? We have some of the best land you can find in the state. And we have a microclimate right here that is excellent for growing things like melons, almonds. We also grow cherries. 
uh, tomatoes, it's excellent. Um, we have better land than say 10 miles away. Mm. And our climate is just perfect for these things. Uh, so, you know, we don't depend on the rain that falls right here on the farm. We depend on rain that falls somewhere else. And just like everybody else in the, in the state, you know, it's kind of like that, right? I mean, Los Angeles depends on water from Oroville up north of Sacramento. Mm -hmm. San Francisco depends on water from Hetch Hetchy that's across on the east side of the Central Valley. So we're all kind of in the same boat. Thank you, Joe Dobuske, again, a far farmer in the Central Valley. Thanks for joining us and being able to, you know, take time literally out from uh, working on the fields. We really appreciate it. I'm glad to be with you, with you anytime. We're talking about the future of agriculture in California, as you heard, just talked with Joe Del Bosque. Tom Philpott, I want to ask you the same question that I asked him. Do you think Joe Del Bosque's farm should, that land should, should continue to be farmed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I think he makes some, some good points about the quality of his soil and the, the great microclimate there. Um, and I think that, um, you know, these are the questions that we need to ask, um, you know, just sort of scaling California agriculture down to its actual water resources is a really important question. And, you know, just because the land that he's on wasn't where someone, you know, some, you know, white settlers showed up in, you know, 1858 or something like that and established a senior water right. So he doesn't have senior water rights to go back to what Ellen was saying before. Um, doesn't mean that necessarily his particular piece of land should go out of production. Um, so I, you know, I think we need a, a reset and a rational way to figure out how to um, to scale down California agriculture to meet its water resources um, is, is the basic question there. We're talking about the future of water and ag in California with Tom Philpot, author of Perilous Bounty: The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. That book's out in paperback May second. When we come back from the break, I promise you we're going to talk about desalination as well as get to other calls and comments. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about future of water and ag in California in light of the drought, in light of climactic change. Joined by Tom Philpot, author of Perilous Bounty, Looming Collapse of American Farming, How We Can Prevent It. 
We promised we'd talk about desalination, the deus machina of California water issues, and I want to carry through on that promise. Uh, Josh from Menlo Park, welcome to the show. Hi there. I was wondering if the guests could comment on nuclear desalination uh, as a possible remedy for both our, uh, you know, water crisis as as well as the need to get rid of uh, our addiction to fossil fuels. Thank you. Hey, thank you for that, Josh. Uh, Tom Philpott, you want to take the first crack at this? I've done some work on this too. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what he's referring to is the fact that desalination is very energy intensive. um, And so it would take a lot of electricity. And so he's proposing to um, build a nuclear power plant and then send the power into into desalinization. And I think that desalinization will certainly play a role in California's future. Um, But the thing about it is, and this goes back to the question that Ellen got earlier about sending wastewater from um, San Francisco over the mountain to the uh, San Joaquin Valley. Um, And that is to get to the San Joaquin Valley from the sea, you would have to get the water over that mountain range. And that would be really, really expensive. And I think what we're going to see desal be crucial for is, you know, the the metropolises along the coast. And, you know, San Diego is already doing some of that. But I don't see it as any kind of really contributing to any kind of solution to the San Joaquin Valley's problem. I mean, I'll just add a little bit on the nuclear piece of it. I mean, this was one of the great dreams of the mid-century that you'd have extremely cheap nuclear electricity that could then, you know, power desalination as well as all the pumping that's required and bring those costs down and, you know, kind of famous uh, quote that electricity would be too cheap to meter. And, you know, with that generation of nuclear facilities, that just never, that never panned out. And I think it's one of the things that... um, remains you know you'd be like yeah it would be great if electricity was essentially free and you could do whatever you you wanted with it and there were no uh no downsides it's just not something that so far has has come to pass although obviously there's a lot of people particularly in that next generation of uh nuclear who who still would like to see uh that work um andrew listener andrew writes let's not ignore the elephant in the room greed Almonds, cashews, alfalfa, the list goes on. I'm happy to not buy nuts and meat if it helps our water supply. Sadly, farmers don't seem to understand the tragedy of the commons when they put up passive-aggressive signs on Highway 5. I would just call those signs aggressive, actually. But um, Tom Philpott, so much of this debate really does seem to come down to just a few crops, in particular the almonds. And I don't know that people quite understand all the factors that have driven farmers to plant more and more acres of almonds, which harden water demand and are water intensive, even though they know that there have been droughts and climate change looms, even if not all of them believe in it. Um, so what has what has driven this move to plant so many almonds? I mean, I think that, you know, in economic terms, it is the desire to squeeze the most profit per drop of water. And so, you know, in the, in the San Joaquin Valley in decades past, years past, you know, there were loads and loads of acres of cotton. And cotton is this commodity that trades in the global market. There's competition from China and India. It doesn't get a great price. Um, and as a result, what you've seen is a shift away from cotton, um, away from alfalfa as well, which is what drives the industrial dairy industry of um, 
of the San Joaquin Valley and into almonds because it is a much, much higher value crop. Um, it brings in a lot more money. It, uh, you know, California has a unique, you know, a uniquely perfect uh, ecosystem for almonds. You, you can't grow them anywhere. They've got to be grown in Mediterranean climates with um, plentiful water supplies. Uh, and that really gets you down to, a, um, you know, not very many places in the world. And you've got this booming market for it. Um, the California Almond Board has been uh, part of the reason for that, uh, aggressively marketing, marketing them in China, in India, in Europe, um, the sort of um, dream of California bounty. Uh, and so you get, um, you know, rising almond prices and this, and, you know, I, I think we should, we should say the same about pistachios, um, you know, similar, um, economics there, similar water politics there. Um, and so it, it is this lunge to get the most profit per drop of water. And in economic terms, it's incredibly rational. Um, but in terms of uh, the ecological realities of the San Joaquin Valley, it, it's very problematic. Yeah. Uh, Matthew writes, I live in Sonoma County where wine grapes are king and every arable acre is being pressed into production. How will this rolling crisis drive new crop mixes in impacted areas? How can we sustain the wine industry when they are draining the aquifer for those of us on wells? Does ag always win around here? Seems like we're headed for a serious train wreck between competing needs here in the exurbs of the Bay Area. Tom, what do you think? I like this question a lot because um, California agriculture is a lot bigger than just the San Joaquin Valley. And um, Sonoma is a place that doesn't get any of this surface water that we're talking about. These, you know, giant aqueducts that bring water from the Sierra Nevada mountain range do not make it out to Sonoma. Uh, and there's many coastal regions like that. Another big one is the Salinas Valley, which is the source of a large amount of um, U.S. vegetable, I'm sorry, U.S. Uh, um, salad, salad stuff, green. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, lettuces and arugula and all that kind of stuff. And these are areas that rely 100% on, um, on groundwater. And, um, and I think that they are having similar reckonings. And, you know, I think that in places like that, um, you know, especially for something like wine, investing the time and money and energy into a shift to dry farming, I think would be really smart. And I think it also could make sense for the quality of the wine as well. Um, and that's where you, um, you know, you, you basically make a, um, you know, you, you sort of like create a layer on, the, on top of the soil um, that's dry and then under it, you trap the moisture and you also make the roots of the of the plants dig deep and you know sort of become their own well and um, and draw water from the aquifer, and um, and that can be really good for the grapes um, uh, for for tasting good. It reduces yield, but it also uh, raises sort of flavor um, profile. So I think for those uh, really sort of high end wine regions like Napa and Sonoma, I think we're going to see a lot more dry farming. Mm. Let's bring in another caller, uh, Rishi in Sunnyvale. Hey, yes. So uh, following up on the comment, so almonds and all the nuts, right, they are exported out of U.S. So we are basically exporting water <laughs> and not the crops, and farmers are getting the profits. So okay. we can support all the growing food we want to grow, but not to export out of U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that comment. I, 
Yeah. No, no, no. I Thank you so much for that. You know, Tom, I, I have to say, um, this thought has occurred to me as well. You know, it feels like, you know, there's there's a thought of farmers, particularly as a political entity, that they're sort of like feeding the nation, which is which is true in, in some respects. But there's also some of these crops that, you know, I would not say almonds are necessarily a staple. Pistachios aren't necessarily like a staple crop. Like people aren't going to go hungry in the United States if we don't grow these crops. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's exactly right. They they end up being the sort of high-end luxury snack food. Um, and I gotta say, I love almonds and pistachios. Um, but I think that the, this idea that we can grow, that it's a good idea to grow lots and lots of them in this you know, very precious region. I, I think Joe Del Bosque was great um, talking to you about it, also talked to me about it for the book about just, you know, it's, it, these are incredible places to grow food and devoting them to these crops that are kind of a luxury crop um, doesn't make that much sense. And, you know, I don't know about, I mean, you know, the idea that we're exporting water, I, I think is true and important, um, but there's, this, there's also this rhetoric about how farms in California are feeding the world. And that, that sort of um, gets into, um, this this export idea that it's important to keep it going to, to keep feeding the world, but once again, the kind of people, the kind of consumers in uh, Europe and Asia who are consuming these these products aren't poor people. They're you know part of this expanding in the case of China middle class, and it isn't a staple for them. And if they get too expensive, they'll just go to something else and and you know be fine. Um, and so, I do think we need to ask questions about you know, what priorities do we have for utilizing this incredible place to grow food? Let's bring in John from Berkeley. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, thanks, Alexis. Um, glad you've written a book, Tom. I'm looking forward to reading it. <clears throat> I just wanted to comment that, you know, we're talking about San Joaquin agriculture or agriculture in the Central Valley as, as though it's uh, it's a problem now because there's a drought. But in fact, this agriculture has been unsustainable for a long time. I mean, the San Joaquin River ran dry for 70 years, the second largest river in the state. And it's going to run dry again this year, uh, because, largely because of agricultural diversions. We've already mentioned the groundwater, you know, there's collapsing surface of the earth because of groundwater overtapping. The San Joaquin agriculture gets its water from the Sacramento River, which is experiencing uh, lots of environmental problems as a result. And that hasn't been enough. And so there's even water that's piped in from the Klamath River, a completely different watershed, into the Sacramento River, shipped downstream, pumped out of the delta into the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, the result of this is we have six endangered fish species in the delta. Water quality in places like Stockton is awful, suffering with toxic, harmful algal blooms. And as I mentioned, the, the surface of the earth is collapsing. So, you know, we're like, of course, we want there to be agriculture. But during this period, and you guys have just been talking about this, uh, of the past several decades, you know, the, the taking off of almonds so that almond orchards now cover an area that's the size of Rhode Island and Delaware combined. Mm -hmm. And that growth in almonds and pistachios and walnuts has just increased even during drought periods. This is unsustainable. And, you know, the signals, the outcomes that I mentioned are just signals that it's unsustainable. And it, it's not just because of the drought. It's a problem we have to deal with drought or no drought. Climate change and increasing droughts are only going to make it more important to deal with. 
John, are you an environmental scientist by any chance? I, I am by chance. Yeah, senior scientist, San Francisco Baykeeper. <laughs> got it. Got it. Hey, thank you, John, for that perspective. I, I, I you know, Tom, I, I don't think that you necessarily disagree with anything uh, John just had to say there. Would you like to follow up on any of it, though? Yeah, I mean, all I'll say is that you know, when I was first reporting the Central Valley um, in the height of the drought, uh, I hadn't really read up much on the history of the Central Valley, and then I, I did so uh, while doing the book. And I was just stunned at, to go back to the comment, I was just stunned at the change, the incredible transformation of that entire landscape that happened upon US settlement in the 1850s. Um, because before that, um, there were millions of acres of wetlands that had been dried. And wetlands are these sort of engines of biodiversity um, in an ecosystem. Lots and lots of species live in them. Um, lots, you know, lots of people live around them and benefit from them. A large um, Native American population in the pre-settlement Central Valley. Um, these rivers just cascading down from the mountains. Um, you know, sometimes changing course. Um, you know, California's weather has always been very chaotic, but this dramatically sort of wet ecosystem. When you go to, to the San Joaquin Valley now, and it's just this parched desert. Um, it is stunning to think about how much water was flowing through there, not from rain in the summer, but from water cascading down the mountains. Um, and I think there is a lot to be said about getting back to some of that, um, restoring some of the wetlands, uh, letting the rivers flow more, rewilding some of the ecosystem there. And I think there would be lots and lots of benefits to it. Yeah. One of our listeners, Anna, writes, in a time of our country's history where we cannot agree to get vaccines to keep us alive, how will we be able to agree on which ground to fallow and how best to parcel out water rights? And I think where, where I want to take this comment, Tom, is you really use California as an example in your book of this kind of American system of farming, you know, and its particular kind of combinations of labor inputs, fossil fuel inputs, water inputs and say, this can't work. Um, and you have a plan for for what could work better or what could come after. Um, and what does that look like? Well, uh, you know, I want to start by saying easier said than done. Um, but, you know, I think that sort of in my vision, so what we would do with the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley is scale down agriculture to a level that is you know, equal to the actual water resources there. And I think if we did that, um, it would shrink dramatically. Um, and so, you know, what does that mean for the country? Well, it means less almonds, but it also means less, there are cer certain fruits and vegetables that are grown there. Um, Joe Del Bosque does cherries and, um, you know, incredible cantaloupes there, um, melons there, I should say. And, um, so scale that down um, to to whatever level we, we decide. I mean, I think you know that's in, you know an incredibly difficult political process in California, and then in the rest of the country, I think we need to reinvest in local and regional agriculture, uh, local and regional fruit and vegetable production. Um, we can't grow almonds anywhere else but California, but we can grow plenty of other nuts. Um, in other places and have a more diverse mix of nuts that we rely on. Um, and, and just like figure out policies in 
Texas, in other parts of the Southwest, in the Northeast, um, in the Southeast, in, in the Corn Belt, which is another big focus of my book. Um, and I think all of these areas can actually grow more food and soften the blow of California sort of receding a little bit. And, you know, I think California, as long as it, our civilization exists, will have food production because of the advantages that we talk about. But I think we should rely on it a lot less. And I think we should start planning right now or actually, you know, five years ago um, about how to make that happen. Yeah. <coughs> well, excuse me. You're basically talking about industrial policy for agriculture, though. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. I think, um, you know, look at what the regional assets are. Um, other areas have ecological assets too, ecological advantages, um, and figure out what is best to grow there. And then, you know, figure out how to, you know, get people moving back onto land. Um, you know, we have this problem of there are young people who want to make a career in agriculture, who want to work on a farm um, in a way that's not incredibly exploited and incredibly low paid and, you know, incre incredibly dangerous. I think all of that has to be addressed as well. Um, but, you know, we have this problem of land values being so high. If you're a young person, it's really, really hard to, you know, come up with the resources to start a farm. You know, these are the problems that we can work on with policy is, um, is, is what I'll say. And I think thinking of it as an industrial policy, I, I think is, um, is fine. Yeah. Nick writes, last comment, uh, water used for crops to feed livestock as a source of protein is unsustainable at, for example, 600 gallons per quarter pounder. Using the water to grow crops for human consumption is sustainable. We can live without meat, but not without water. Also, use the perfect climate in the Central Valley to create solar power, electricity, and export that to other counties or states. Use the ideal California sunshine for energy generation and not depleting an essential resource, water. Great comment, Nick. Good ending. We've been talking about the future of agriculture in light of the drought uh, going into its third year as well of climactic change. We've been joined by Tom Philpott, author of Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Book comes out on paperback May 2nd. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks for having me. Earlier, we heard from Joe Del Bosque, CEO of Del Bosque Farms in the San Joaquin Valley, and Ellen Hannock, Vice President and Director of the PPIC Water Policy Center. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.